When I first came here this morning, I asked, how do you get people to move forward? This is how you do it. <laughs> you see, if you can't see the whites of their eyes, you have no idea what's going on. You know, I want to welcome you all to a Mother's Day thing. And the idea of Mother's Day fits really well with what we're looking at in Acts chapter 11, because it deals with this issue of pivotal events. Uh, being born is a pivotal event. You all agree, correct? Okay. And some of you, not me, but some of you have had the privilege of giving birth, and that's a pivotal event. I was with that happened, you see. And our second child was born in an undergraduate dormitory at Michigan State University because we were too poor to pay for hospitals. So her birth certificate says 109 Snyder Phillips Hall, Michigan State University. You see, she's smart even before she was born, you see. The idea of pivot points has to do with the fact that some things happen along the way, which we look back on and say, ah, something was going on, I didn't realize it. But change the trajectory of our lives. Now, my understanding is you're looking at some of these points in our study in the book of Acts, and I followed on with Pastor Ryan asking him, telling me where you're at, and I'm trying to fit in with that general flow. And today is one of these huge ones. Now, to give you a bit of background, what you got to realize is that Luke, as he's writing this embryonic history of the early Christian church, kind of gives us a, a table of contents in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where he says, when Jesus commissions the disciples, he says to them, I'm going to ask you to be witnesses to me in Judea, Jerusalem, secondly, Judea, and thirdly, the uttermost parts of the earth. And Luke uses that framework of close or home culture, near culture, and distant culture as a way to describe the events that take place as he creates his history. You'll recognize that in Acts 2, this is summary for those of you that are brighter than I am, this is summary that in Acts 2, Peter gives a kind of sermon to the people who have gathered at Pentecost in Jerusalem. They're near or home culture people. They're coming home. And he speaks to them as the way in which they need to hear what they've witnessed about the life and legacy of Jesus Christ. And then we get to chapter 10 and 11. You looked at chapter 10 last week. And that's the first example of where all of a sudden Peter speaks to a near culture kind of group. Cornelius is living in Caesarea. He's someone who's sympathetic to this view of God, but he doesn't know who Jesus is. It's near culture. We'll look a bit more in detail at that. And then the far, far culture starts to take place throughout most of the rest of the last half of the book of Acts. And what, what Luke does is he uses Paul's address to the philosophers on Mars Hill as a kind of embryonic way in which the Christ followers of the first century should address people who have no background in the scriptures. Paul uses some of the, Hebrew, the Greek poets of the day to prove his point. So here's the huge point. Luke presents the history of the early Christian movement as a primer for bearing witness in each sub subsequent era. This is just not history, friends, but it's a paradigm as to the way we're supposed to deal with people that we meet who are either home culture, near culture, or foreign culture. By the way, you have that privilege because you live at the University of Connecticut. 
and people come from all over the world. When I was a student at UConn, one of the fun things we did with the Christian Fellowship, just to kind of broaden our things, is we would go to the International House. I don't know if it's still there. But we played ping pong and got royally creamed <laughs> by the people who came from cultures across the Pacific Ocean. But it helped us understand a little bit what was going on. And it gave us the chance to, to have good tea and play ping pong and practice English and Chinese. You see, here's the thesis behind it. Because God is the God of all of history and of all people, the way he works in one place, in one time, has embryonic truth for all places and all times. <laughs> So that when we read Acts 11, we're just not reading ancient history, but we're reading the way God wants to teach us to deal with our time and our place right here. Oh, you see where we're going here tonight? So this history is just not an ancient history lesson. It's a primer on how to do or bear witness to Jesus today in Willington, in Stores, in Willimantic, Mansfield wherever you live. So follow along. I'm reading uh, the whole chapter, Acts 11, and you can look at it with me as I get through this. Luke begins this way. The apostles and brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of an uncircumcised man and ate with them. We'll understand why they're all uptight about that in a bit. But you understand there's some indictment going on here. Peter began to explain to them everything precisely as it had happened. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance, I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheep being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, birds of the air, and I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, surely not, Lord. Isn't that always interesting? Surely not, Lord. He's saying that God is Lord, but he's telling him, I'm not going to do what you tell me. None of us do that, by the way, do we? The irony compounds itself. Surely not, Lord. Nothing impure and clean will ever enter my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that the Lord has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them, as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remember what the Lord said, said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same spirit as he gave us, who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? Isn't that great logic here? Sorry, I can't help but intersperse stuff. This is great stuff. When they heard this, 
this next verse the key to the whole chapter. They had no further objections and praised God saying, so then, surprise, 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 surprise. God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Section one. Now section two. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived, he saw evidence of the grace of God and was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a, while, for, for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first in Antioch, at Antioch. During this time, some of the prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. That's a great text. Great text. Great text. And I want to get to the huge point. It's just two points, and I'll kind of unpack it a bit. But the two segments work together logically, not just historically, but logically. And they work this way. Peter's explanation for what happens at Cornelius' house to the people who are in Jerusalem becomes the means for God's expansion of the church. I want you to say it with me because I'm not sure you're all awake. I don't know if I'm awake, but you know how this works, okay? Explanation results in expansion. Say it with me. Explanation results in expansion. I can spend it out a little bit further. God-given explanation results in God-empowered expansion. When we see what God's doing and agree with it, God can't help but move through us. Now you're all saying McCoy, you really don't, you just travel here. You really don't live here. You see, it's true not only in Antioch, in Jerusalem, the first century. It's true in Willington and Stores and Mansfield and Willimantic in the 21st century. How does it work? Well, you recall last week, Peter has this great experience with Cornelius in his house. He then because it's of such a radical change in the way these early Christ followers deal with stuff, people talk to him and they say, Peter, you did something that's verboten. You're not supposed to do what you did. And he has to go back and give an account. Verse 2, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. So Peter explains his experience. Now, a little background here. Some of you know all this. But you understand the two values that are going on here. One is the preservation of orthodoxy. And the second is hearing the Spirit's direction into a place that seems a little squirrely. 
the cultural divide in the ancient world is just as bad as it is in the current world. But the difference between those people who saw themselves to be Jews and all the rest of the people who they considered to be Gentiles was such that you didn't eat one with the other. By the way, this happens in the land of Syria between Shia and Sunnis. And the Kurds are out there hanging in the wind. It happens in places like Korea, especially North Korea, although what's fascinating is what may be happening in that land. It happened in times past between Protestant and Catholic in Northern Ireland. And I'll let you know that as a kid growing up, I was indoctrinated into this stuff without even realizing it. On St. Patrick's Day, I was chastised by my Catholic teacher in fifth grade that I wore no green. My mother was so incensed she made me wear something orange when I went back to school. And this was in America. Now, those of you who don't understand, I'll explain some of the cultural things down the run. But understand that when people lose sight of a global God, they pick up of some kind of affinity that's lesser than that God. So Peter has to explain himself. And he does so by uh, uh, noting three arguments that proved to be so incontrovertible that ultimately the people then result in an affirmation of what happens. The three arguments. One, it was preceded by a vision. What happened was not my idea, it was God's. And note here carefully, friends, that the vision did not clarify for Peter what was going to happen. It confused him to the point of bringing him to a full stop. Sometimes the vision that God gives us is meant to say, hold on, just stop. Because i got to get your attention before I can tell you stuff. You know, the sheet comes down. You heard about it last week. The point wasn't to clarify what Peter later would understand to be true, but just to get Peter to say, hold on. In other words, Peter's saying, it wasn't my idea. This was a God thing. The second thing that happened is it was prompted by a voice. Peter had enough of a sense of what the Spirit of God's voice sounded to him that when he heard the knock on the door, the Spirit would say, don't have any problems, go with these guys. I sent them, you go with them. He still doesn't have a clue what's going to happen. But he has an inner assurance that the same spirit who's led him to different places is the same spirit that's going to lead him somewhere else. And I'll let you know, friends, if you're going to do God's work, you've got to develop that inner voice hearing what God's saying to you. Not only from reading the text, but hearing the spirit speak through the text. The third thing Peter says is it was proven by a visitation. When he speaks and tells all these people what has happened to him by virtue of his connection with Jesus, he says, in the same way the Spirit came on us at Pentecost, came on them too. Note that the purpose for the sign, the purpose for the speaking in tongues, was to ultimately validate that it was the same Spirit for both Jew and Gentile. It was actually meant to be a confirmation to Jewish believers <laughs> Because that's what was necessary to make sure that the early church was not two bodies, but one. <laughs> Peter not only understands that to be true from what he's seen, what he's heard, what he's visioned, but there are six other guys that go with Peter and they say, 
What Peter says, we saw too. So there's a certain sense in which when you come to any group of people and say, we, that's what I think God's going on, there's got to be some confirmation with the rest of the folk who are part of your inner circle. There's no Lone Ranger Christians here, friends. So Peter comes back, and he says this stuff. He says, ah. Oh. And ultimately, the people heard this, verse 18, and it says, so then, God has granted, I love it, even... <laughs> The Gentiles, repentance unto life. Now, we step back and we're sophisticated. We're near institutions of higher learning. I mean, we, we're, we're, we're cool people, correct? You are, not me. But I mean, you, you we are. And we say, what's the big deal? We say, we think somewhat smugly, didn't Jesus welcome Gentiles? Didn't he meet with the Samaritan woman at the well? Do you remember that? Uh, didn't Jesus uh, heal the demoniac who was living among the pigs? That's not Jewish territory, friends. And then he sent him back home. Didn't Jesus also heal the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman? I mean, Jesus was doing all this stuff all the time. And he, didn't Jesus even commission his disciples just before he goes into heaven and says, I want you to go and disciple the nations. Now, the word nation in Greek is ethnos. It really is better translated peoples. I mean, the commission isn't just to stay with my kind of people. It's to do all people. Didn't Jesus say that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, what, 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 what's wrong with this? Why didn't they get it? Uh, well, let me turn the question around. Why don't I get it? And here, true confession time. Let me give you my three reasons why I don't do what God wants me to do regarding this stuff. The first is uh, what I call my ruddedness. <laughs> I get comfortable doing what I've always been doing. And I find that I get into a rut, and it's extremely hard to get out of the rut. And I'll let you know, it's harder the older you get. <laughs> so some of you have ways to catch up to me on this one, you see. But we get in a rut, and it takes a lot of effort to get out of the rut and talk to people that we would ultimately not want to talk to. The second thing is more, we become ritually blind. We not only get comfortable, but we rationalize and institutionalize our lifestyle. Well, I'm a person who listens to, I'm going to offend all sorts of people on both sides, so understand it's coming. I listen to Rush Limbaugh. What's wrong with you guys? Or I listen to CNN, especially when I'm at Conn College running on the treadmill, because that's the only thing they show there. Whatever the political divide, we use it to basically make our prejudices seem normal. Thirdly, we not only get comfortable, but we so begin to isolate I begin to isolate myself so much that the only people I see are those that conform to my worldview. I have a kind of racial myopathy. And I'm using the word racial in quotes. It's not necessarily racial in terms of skin pigmentation, but racial in the sense of people who think like me. And those are the only people I want to listen to. And it's hard work to actually listen to folk who are different than me. And when you don't listen to people who are different than you, your world starts to get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. 
I'm a bit slow at practicing what I'm preaching here, but let me tell you what God's been doing in my life just to help me along this way. Last September, I did an outdoor wedding with a couple who had grown up in the southern Connecticut, southeastern Connecticut area. They live in New York City. We had an outdoor deal. Thankfully, the rain held off. It was one of those beautiful nights. After the wedding was over, we're between the first reception and the second reception. You know, we eat the little stuff first and then eat the big stuff later, okay? And they're waiting to get stuff up. And I come up to this couple, and this guy looks like he's bored out of his gourd, which we find out later he was. And he comes up to me and he says, Bob, you did a pretty good job at the wedding. I go, oh, that attracted me. I had no idea. He says, I know who you are. I said, you what? Never met the guy. He says, I even know where you live. You know where I live? Yeah, I know all your kids, too. You do? Yeah, I had them all. They were students of mine at Cutler Middle School. I was the PE teacher there. And I can tell you what happened to each of your kids when they were at Cutler. He knew more about my kids than I did. And he looked at me. He says, what are you doing to stay in shape? I says, well, I, you know, I swam for UConn. That's what I, my, my first sport. But my daughter's got me into running. He says, you should come running with us. Every Saturday morning, we run a 5K at Groton Long Point. I hate the mornings. I don't really like running. See, the problem with running is you know when you're faking it, because then you stop, you walk. With swimming, you can float along and look like you're doing okay, you see. So for the last three or four or five months, each Saturday morning, this little jogging club has happened. And as we schlep along Grotten Long Point at a very slow pace, God is putting me in touch with people I never knew existed. <laughs> But it takes effort to get outside your comfort zone and realize that God may be putting you in touch with people who you don't normally contact. Now, as I'm speaking, I'm trusting the Spirit of God is putting all sorts of people in your mind right now. And I'm saying it's not the people that you spend lots of time with that God calls you to. It's the people you spend just a little bit of time with. <laughs> All of this is merely prelude to the real gist of what Luke wants us to understand. That when Peter gets a hold of the explanation, when the people at Jerusalem get hold of the explanation that the God that they worship is a global God, then all of a sudden the Spirit of God can work through them and use them to bear witness to folks all over the place. Before we get there, can I ask you, who is God bringing to your head right now as to who you need to get up and go across the street, across the room, across the cube farm, across someplace else to just say, hey, I'm a neighbor, haven't really talked to you a whole lot. We'd just like to know, because there was this dumb bald guy at my church who encouraged us to go talk to somebody we don't really spend a lot of time with. Throw me under the bus. And I just want to understand a little bit about what's true of your history that, I, that makes you enjoy this place. Use some kind of question like that and then be prepared to listen for a while. Explanation that God is concerned with the whole world becomes the means by which expansion takes place because if he's concerned, so ought we. And all God's people will say, mm -hmm. You don't know what you're committing to at this point. So let me tell you what you're committing to.
That's the second part of the thing. The church's expansion then comes with three universal factors. The first is that expansion comes by suffering. We don't want to hear this, but it's true. The inadvertent expansion of God's work comes when God puts difficulty in their life. And in this case, the nature of the persecution thrust God's people out of Jerusalem and into the Near East. Luke's not making a judgment about the character of the people at this point, because they all are like us. They desire stability, sameness, security. But God uses the disruptions of our life to get us in touch with new people. Initially, the message spreads to those who are of similar cultural backgrounds, but as difficulty happens, we find ourselves in touch with people who are just a little different than us, and then some folk a whole lot different than us. Uh, I could tell lots of stories at this point. Let me give you my most favorite illustration. Uh, some of you know the history of evangelism within China. Uh, I almost got to spend some time there, but two weeks before I was in China, Tiananmen Square happened and China shut down, so I never got there. But during the late 1800s, early 1900s, China became a thing of great interest on the part of Christian missions, primarily in England. You remember the story of Hudson Taylor, the China Inland Mission, all that stuff. And among the hundreds of millions of people who lived in China, after 20, 30, 40 years of evangelistic work, it was estimated that there were maybe between 2 and 5 million Christians living in China. This is probably up to about 1940, 1950. Now, there's almost a billion folk living in China. But at that point, there was only about 2 to 5 million. Hard to judge, guessing at this point. Well, it's at this point that the Christians, as they always are, were a good scapegoat for Mao Zedong to basically say that the laziness on the part of the Chinese culture was due to Christians. So he instituted a program of persecution that the Christian church diminished from about 5 million to 300,000. Most people think that's the case beginning mid-1950s. And then Mao made a fatal error. What he decided to do was he institutionalized an idea that those 300,000, if you proclaimed yourself to be a Christ follower, you were going to be separated from all your other affinity groups, and he put one Christian in every city, village, town in China. He disseminated the whole 300,000 to all the 300,000 towns, city, villages, or whatever of China. And of course, you know what happened. He became the greatest Christian mission-sending agent in the whole world. Within the next 15 years, those 300,000 moved to about 50 million. And right now, it's estimated that there may be more Christians in China than in the United States, 250 million, depending on how you count. You understand that God uses suffering. He uses persecution to expand the church. And when difficulty comes, friends, be aware that it doesn't catch God by surprise. <laughs> I'll say a bit more about that at the end. Expansion also comes because of a strategic plan. Because these people in Antioch all of a sudden are becoming Christ followers, the folks send word down to Jerusalem, we need some help. So they get the most encouraging guy they can, Barnabas, and they say, Barnabas, come on up to Antioch, help us out. 
And Barnabas sees the lay of the land, and he sees, among other things, that these people in, in Antioch, they're both Jewish, they're Gentile, and they don't have a clue who they are. There are all sorts of other stuff. In fact, they're such a mixed breed that the people there don't know what to call them. They can't call them Jews. They can't call them... So they call them by this thing, Christ ones. And the Christ ones are an interracial minority of people that follow Jesus, and that's the only thing the rest of the world can kind of identify them with. So he needs someone who can ultimately speak to the Jewish world, to the Gentile world, who has some status within the Roman world, and as he remembers, I remember this guy. <laughs> he was the guy that went to Damascus. You remember the story? And then ultimately went on the backside of the desert for a bunch of He's living with his folks in Tarsus. He's got a Jewish mom. He's got a Gentile dad. A Greek, and now he's a Roman citizen. Great guy. In fact, he fits the bill. And so what we do, friends, is by virtue of knowing our client population, we seek to insert people who are precisely mitigated to know and identify with them. Isn't this great? Strategic plan. So if you really want someone who can play hard rock and roll Jesus music to bikers, I know a guy. <laughs> do you catch the drift? That we're here, friends, not just for ourselves. And to make ourselves feel good, we're here to get to know each other. How did this work? A woman in our small group has a neighbor, a colleague. She teaches at one of the colleges down there. And the guy's going through colon cancer and is going through a prod, a, you know, this deal where they make a new colon. <laughs> so happens there's a guy in our church who had the exact same surgery. So she gets robbed to come talk to her neighbor. The guy's not a believer, but all of a sudden they connect. Suffering, strategic plan comes to get them to talk to each other. So as we know, more of what's going on in our community, both internally and externally, we seek to marry the people because we believe that God doesn't, he's too good an economist to waste anything. <laughs> Last thing, which is kind of a summary on this. Uh, expansion comes by virtue of mutual support. There's a, a synergy, a symbiosis between money and mission. And one of the things that's true is that when you give money, you have a vested interest in who you're giving it to. Unless you practice what's called convenient compassion, you do it just to feel good and then forget about it. But no, most Christians, what they do is they give money, and with that comes the idea that I'm going to pray for the people I'm giving to. In fact, my encouragement to you is, as you give to what was suggested in the, the bulletin to this guy going on a mission trip, you don't just give the money, you commit to pray. <laughs> And then when he comes back, you find out, well, what happened? And the reason for that is that when that takes place, the hugeness of how God works in other parts of the world starts to happen, and you identify that the glory of God is bigger than my little place. <laughs> and when we give money, here the irony is, is the money's being given to the people who initially were the origins of the story. <laughs> What happens in this chapter is merely an illustration of what happens in the next two chapters. And here I'm doing catch-up for Pastor Ryan because he's away celebrating his fiancé's graduation so that he'll be married to a very intelligent woman. You know how this all works. I mean, I, I've heard the story, okay? But in the next couple chapters, you see James is martyred. Suffering takes place. 
Peter is in prison and miraculously released. Do you know the story? Chapters 13 and 14, Paul and Barnabas go on their first missions trip. They go to these weird places that are hard to pronounce and nobody ever heard about. But in fact, when they come back, the people say that the God has opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Chapter 14, verse 27. Explanation results in expansion. Now, three lessons and then a closing illustration. What do we take away from this? One is that God is always ahead of our curve. Can I let you know, I don't know what's going to happen to you in the next week, month, year. I don't. I don't. But I know God does. <laughs> and one of the interesting things about this story is it gives us permission to believe that while God isn't caught by surprise, we can rest in the fact that what's going to happen next is part of his plan. <laughs> If we blow it, that doesn't catch him by surprise. If we make the wrong statement, don't. But at least you take the risk because God did. <laughs> Second lesson. Well, here's a question. Where do you see God at work in your life to expand his kingdom? I mean, we're coming into the time where cabin fever is officially over. You know, people can actually go out of their house to talk. You, the lawn wars can begin. I mean, that's what happens in our thing. Who's got the best lawn? You know, I, I don't know what happens around here. Secondly, God encourages strategic efforts by use of their people's gifts and backgrounds. You know, I, I, I can't highly commend the idea of vacation Bible school. Kids get bored. Parents are happy to get rid of them for a couple hours. This is the chance to... Uh, churches get... En enriched. And even if you can't get down on your hands and knees, you can pray for the kids. What will God do in your life? Where is God encouraging you to continue on, continuing on? And the third is, God supports us both personally, plurally, and purposefully to grow his work. How has God expanded your view of him? So that all you can do is give him thanks and worship. Uh, let me close with a kind of personal illustration. A couple weeks ago, um, uh, a nephew of two of the guys that are part of a men's Bible study that I'm involved with, nephew, died of opioid overdose. It's, a, it's bad stuff. We went to the funeral home, and this guy, pictures of him, Gavin, his name, I mean, he was huge. He must have had 18-inch arms. I mean, he was huge. Hunter-gatherer, fisher, that kind of person. And yet, drugs got the better of him. We're standing in line for 45 minutes to get up, to give some kind of solace during the wake to his mom. Gavin had made some profession of faith way back wasn't really walking with the Lord a whole lot. And we're all of a sudden recognizing that Gavin is exactly the same age as my son Keith, who died three years ago. He had cancer. So when we come up to his mom, his mom's brother, one of the guys in the study says, these guys know what you're dealing with. Their son died too. Now, friends, I would much rather have my kid back 
that make it an entry level to talk about Jesus to somebody. But do you understand that God uses sufferings, strategic plans, and mutual support as a way to help us connect with folk who are going through rough goes? And why do I hang on to that? Well, it's precisely because we're about to celebrate a point of suffering and of sacrifice. And we only do what Jesus already did. <laughs> and as he gave up his life, so we're encouraged to give up ours. <laughs> and as we worship Jesus in the taking of bread and fruit of the vine, we're not just entering into a ritual, but we're using it as a lens to see our place in the world that Jesus died for. Explanation given by God results in God-empowered expansion by first of all making us large to see the world and giving us the courage to go into it. Let me pray, then we'll worship together. Okay. Lord Jesus, we want to say, would you use the words of Acts 11 and encourage my brothers and sisters and myself to know something of the greatness of your plan for our lives. We're people who desperately need you to come into our lives and get us out of our ruts. We need you, I need you especially, to encourage me to hang out with people that make me feel uncomfortable. And I pray as a result of our coming to worship you and saying, Lord, thank you for dying for me, we would also affirm that you also died for those that don't know you yet. We give you thanks for these things, and I pray in the name of Jesus, and all God's people will say, Amen.